Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. How was sales conference? <laughs> sales conference was extraordinary. What was that guy called with the teeth on the TV? Leyland. Leland. Rylan. Rylan. That's right. The life of Rylan. That's right. The life, oh, of, the Rylan. life of Rylan. Yeah, good. Other See what they yeah. were. Um, Wasn't there Alan Carr at Atomy or something? What was yeah, that? I can't remember. But yeah, we had Alan Carr. We had Zadie Carr Smith. Car crash. It, we had Zadie Smith. We had Jamie <laughs> Oliver. It was a kind of. Ooh. It was a. It was a. Yeah, a kind of a. A Salma Gundi of, uh, of, of, of modern publishing genius. What, what? A what? Look it up, kids. Salma Gundi is a kind of a, it's like a, you know, it's like a sort of um, a dish with all sorts of different ingredients wow, in it. it. Yeah. I've learned, was actually, I've learned there, something already. We haven't even started. There was a very famous uh, highbrow American journal called Salma Gundi. That's the only reason. Really? But Susan Sontag used to, Susan Sontag used to contribute <laughs> to. Very highbrow. Always reminds me of that great joke of, um, of Woody Allen's where he said, you know, dissent and commentary. I have this fantasy that the two of them will merge and form dysentery. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, and I, it, was, it was good. I mean, it was amazing. It's uh, publishing, traditional publishing, as we like to call it, at, at the top of its game. But um, none the more. N- where was n- it? None the less fun for where that. Where was it? Uh, it was in a ghastly hotel in on the outskirts. Well, it's supposedly in Birmingham. I'm doing cats. <laughs> yeah, I saw was, a photo. I saw a photo on Twitter of a conference. But the like... logistics is vast now. I mean, hundreds yeah, yeah. Of th- I think it's a thousand people. They don't all fit in one room. There and we had to do our presentation. Seriously, yeah. Wow. We had to do our presentation twice. Once at the. Uh, what seemed to me rather early time of 10 in the morning. <laughs> and then uh, First house again, and the second house. <laughs> exactly. We were much better in the afternoon, Matthew. Yeah, we? we were. I don't know why that was, John. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Everyone had been drinking, hadn't they, by, by then? Yeah. Uh, or uh, had, had time to recover from the previous night's <laughs> drinking, perhaps more to the point. Yeah. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. As usual, we're gathered around the kitchen table of our lovely sponsors Unbound. You know them. They're the publishers who bring authors and readers together on a lovely website. And I'm John Mitchinson, publisher at Unbound, so I would say that about them, wouldn't I? (laughs) He's so (laughs) slick now. He's slick. And I'm Andy Miller. Uh, I'm the author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And uh, we're joined on... The podcast uh, <laughs> by our producer right. Matt, podcast. who is pointing. He's saying, I'm supposed to say by playwright, journalist, and author Samantha Ellis, who's no, not. I, oh. You were going to say. Oh, no. Go on, you go then. Go on. You read off the. Actually, you do this bit of the script. All right. Excellent. Maybe we should have printed two scripts off. <laughs> yeah, how come he gets the script and I don't? I'm John Mitchell. I'm John Mitchell. <laughs> I'm John Mitchell. <laughs> 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 uh, I'm Andy Miller. I'm the author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. Uh, and we are joined, as usual, by the writer and shaman, Matthew Clayton. <laughs> Hello, Matthew. Hello, Andy. <laughs> Hello. And we're also joined by. 
We're joined today by the playwright and journalist Samantha Ellis, whose book How to Be a Heron was published to multiple and copious plaudits in 2014. Hello, Samantha. Hi, hi. Samantha has chosen the book we're going to be talking about in this show, Lolly Willows, by Sylvia Townsend Warner. But first, this is traditional. I'm going to get Andy to ask me. <laughs> yeah. Hey, John, yes, out of Andy. interest, what have you been reading? I, I'm obviously so pleased that you asked me that question. And I've been reading a, an extraordinary book called Snowy Tower, Parsifal and the Wet Black Branch of Language by Martin Shaw. And the first thing I'd have to say about it is, I've said it's remarkable, but the second thing I'd have to say about it is not published in the UK, but I think you can get it. It's published by uh, White Cloud Press in Oregon in the United States. Oof. So I think it is possible for you to get it on uh, on limited edition import. What's his name? Martin Shaw. Would you describe him as a master storyteller? <laughs> I would say he's a master of many things. Oof. He is definitely a, a great storyteller. And the book is about storytelling. The book is, in a way, a retelling and an opening up of the 13th century poem Parzival, which is one of the key elements of, of the Grail story, one of the key retellings of the, of, the, of the Grail story, and obviously the basis of Wagner's opera, but also of much else, by the Mina singer, the, the German sort of troubadour, Wolfram von Eschenbach. <laughs> I don't read medieval German, uh, and I don't need to in this book, because um, Martin's version of the story is, kind of, is, is published in full at the back. Uh, in, as an appendix. So you can read the story straight without anything else. But then what he does is he takes it apart. Is it fiction or non No, no, it's totally non-fiction. It's, right. He's basically writing about... He's writing, it's about storytelling and myth. Right. Um, he's got a great thing. He, he, he is a teacher of myth. And in order to get closer to the sort of the, the, the deep roots of it, he lives in Dartmoor. So that's one of the odd things about the book. Yeah. Martin Shaw himself is based here, but his work is published. So how did you, how did you hear about it? I heard about it through uh, the Dark Mountain Project, which is the brainchild of Paul Kingsnorth, who is the author ah. of The Wake, one of, uh, one of Unbound's yes, authors. Yes. Basically, Paul did an event with, with Martin in Edinburgh last year yeah. and Mark Rylance, who's bought the, the film rights to The Wake and reads brilliantly the... If you know, Paul's novel is written yeah, yeah. in a, a shadow tongue, halfway between Anglo-Saxon modern English. And Rachel, my wife, was there looking after all three of them and came back with Martin's book saying that was it was a really remarkable... Well, she said two things. It was a really remarkable event. And she said, you ought to go off and spend four mm. days fasting up the mountain with Martin Shaw. <laughs> it would be good for you. Have you? Uh, no, but I, re- I really do want to. Re- can I read you just a little yeah, bit right. just to get you... Just to give she, you meant the other, she meant the other Martin Shaw. <laughs> <laughs> so let me, let me give you a... Let me give you a flavour of, of the book. I, I devoured this and I haven't read a book. Uh, it, it's kind of, you know, Robert Bly, that sort yeah. of thing. I mean, I think he writes wonderfully. To tell Parsifal in a good way, I first took it back to the fireside for several years, to wood smoke and low-bellied badgers, rustling beds of nettles and a hundred million stars overhead. Up on the lupine flank of Dartmoor, I once told the story for three days straight, eyes weeping from the wet kindling, great draperies of mist settling around our small gang, iron rain paddling our thin canvas shelter hanging from the oaks, the drops fierce thrumming around us. It gave the story a chance to stretch its handsome bones on Devon soil, to examine its frosty frosty whiskers in the cool green reflection of a moorland lake. So, I'm totally... I'm I'm in for this. (laughs) So, in one word, then, is it a hit or a myth? (laughs) <laughs> oh, thanks, thanks, Matt, for bringing us, dragging us back down to earth. 
but it is it is it's a retelling of a of a story and i think a, a pretty and i one of the reasons i was interested in it is his myth is kind of is about story and it's about imagination he kind of has a bit of a pot pot takes a bit of a pot shot at social media as a, you know low hanging fruit let's be honest but what he says is that we're adrift in an epidemic of the literal which i sort of know what he means and one of the problems is that we a general, a general sense of well there are two books out this week which I ought to like but I have slight problems with one is the book by Charles Foster which is called Being a Beast mm-hmm. which, uh, oh, yeah. and the other mm-hmm. one is called Goat Man now these are two books that yes, come out yes. more or less at the same time yes. about people actually pretending to be animals yeah. now I'm all for understanding animals and, and we'll come on we'll probably talk about a bit of this when we get on to, to Lolly Willows but you know it's like you don't actually have to go and eat worms and live in the garden. Do you, do you know, you remember, it's about using you your the, imagination and, the, and our inability now to use our imagination. We sort of want we want everything to be fact based. We want everything yeah, we, unless we can yeah. actually put the worm in our own mouth. We we can't imagine what it's like to be a badger or what it's like to. Alan Bennett tells a brilliant story, but do you remember the actor Michael Bryant, who's no longer with us, sadly. Michael Bryant was a grand old man yeah, yeah, of the yeah. National Theatre and. Uh, Alan Bennett scripted a revival of Toad of Toad Hall, Wind in the Willows. One of the features of this revival of Wind in the Willows is that the actors had, were taken to uh, mime and movement classes to teach them how to move like um, rats and moles and weasels and what have you. And uh, Michael Bryant attended the first day in his role as Badger. And on the second day, <laughs> he said uh, he didn't attend. And Alan Bannett rang up. He said, the thing is, Alan, I've discovered the most extraordinary thing. This badger moves exactly like Michael Bryant. <laughs> so, well, that's, that's absolutely perfect, because that's sort of what I... is that stories are human things. We make stories that are kind of the core matter of, of the human material is, is story. Uh, like Martin Shaw's, my last bit on, just, on his website, he says, the business of stories is not enchantment. It's not escape. The business of stories is about waking up. And again, mm. this will be a, a, the theme of waking up and, a, yeah. and a, a, awakenings, particularly the awakenings that have been kind of um, dislodged or, or, or made. So that's ca- called Snowy it's Tower. It's called Snowy Tower, Parzival and the Wet Black branch of language do you think it'll come out here um well uh, I, I reveal my hand slightly if i have anything to do about it, i, I <laughs> really love us to do it see if we can find a, yeah, a, a yeah. way of doing a, a, a uk version of it it is i was remarkable and i it's not often that i i read a book as they say in one sitting but i, I did i had spent all <laughs> last saturday reading and getting more and more excited Super. By it. i would also recommend just thinking about books about stories and how stories are constructed i don't know if anyone here's read john york's book into the woods came out a couple of years ago oh yeah wonderful wonderful book and he and it, it, he goes to the way that stories work and it's all you know you go into the woods to a new place and you come back with something that makes your home good again or right yeah, again yeah. He did a talk for me in Brighton. I asked him at the end of it, I said, what's the point of all this? What's the point of knowing this? And he said, the point of knowing this is you realise the difference between truth and lies. Because uh, when a story takes over, it becomes lies. And once you understand the structure of stories, you can see the ways that people have played with what actually happened and turned into something else. And as soon as you start reading newspapers through that prism, it completely changed the way that I looked at the news and the way it's related to us. So you suddenly see the way that they've been... How narrative is Yeah, how narrative is being constructive and used to 
bend stuff. Yeah. God, this is also. I feel Sylvia Townsend Warner just standing at the end of the street waving at us, saying, <laughs> "Come on in." But before that, Andrew, yes, you have also been reading. You've been working your way through that Bowie list. I have. We've picked this up a couple of times now, but I think I just want to... This is the last time I'll talk about it, but I'm, you recall last time, anyone who listened to the last podcast, I read Pakun because it was on David Bowie's list of 100 books. So since the last podcast, I've read a couple of more books from Bowie's list. I read English Journey by J.B. Priestley and The American Way of Death by Jessica Mitford. And so I'll tell you a little bit about each of those. Basically, I really, I loved uh, English Journey. Isn't it great? God, what a fantastic yeah. book. Fantastic book, the subtitle. Being a rambling but truthful account <laughs> of what one man saw and heard and felt and thought during a journey through England during the autumn of the year 1933. Yeah. And it's fascinating to read it in comparison with Orwell's The Road to Wigan Pier, yeah. uh, which was written in the same period, which was commissioned by the same person. I think I'm right in saying I think that's right. He he could easily be. So Priestley is more to the right than Orwell. And yet the thing that's wonderful about English Journey is, first of all, the depiction of a country in which, in 1933, uh, he was travelling through the industrial north and was pretty horrified by what he found. Yeah. You know, he was saying, you know, this area of the country was despoiled and ruined uh, and looted and the money was rerouted to london to enrich the city and the inhabitants were left to live amongst the slag heaps northern powerhouse <laughs> anyway <laughs> well, and so i found that absolutely fascinating but also i really love the thing i loved about english journey was the extent to which Priestley gets that balance exactly right, which actually Orwell doesn't always, although always yeah. magnificent writer wrote to Wigan Pier, yeah. magnificent, but of being just the right amount of grumpy, yeah. right, and just grumpy enough to get away with telling you what he had for breakfast, whether it was any good or not, because he never stays in that mode for too long. It reminded me of that book by Paul Theroux. Yeah, yeah, Kingdom by the Sea. Kingdom by the Sea, yeah. which is a wonderful book, but but is is a slightly more is a slightly grimmer even grum- even journey around yeah. the, the UK. I would assume that Bowie had read English Journey again, relatively young, and I can see why it would stay with you as a depiction of parts of the country that didn't feel like a period piece either. You know, I mean, in some it's, respects, it's, it's clearly. But I mean, it's years since I read it, but I, I just remember because I used to, I'd had a bit of a jag of reading a lot of those. H.V. Morton, yeah, in, yeah, in search of books, and uh, the other one, H.J. Massingham, who wrote a lot of the the, um, yeah. the Batsford, uh, yeah, and they're kind of they are so addled by nostalgia for a kind of a, a lost Merry England that probably never really existed. Which also, which Priestley talks about specifically but saying he, he, the difference between Merry England yeah. and quotes unquotes Merry England, yeah. this thing which was already becoming. Yeah. Uh, a cliche in 1933 in terms of how it was represented in restaurants and advertising and uh, and what have you. And there was also a fantastic, if anybody follows me on Twitter, I, I shan't read it out, but I, I tweeted a paragraph about Priestley defending multicultural Bradford, I did which see is that. just That's the brilliant. most brilliant, stirring thing and it, that you could read. I can't remember. Is it a Penguin Classic? Well, you know what? It was in, it's currently not in print in a paperback edition. <sighs> so I bought like uh, the folio edition from the mid-90s. I picked that up secondhand for about a, a tenner, and it's full of the incredible 
photographs which were researched for the Jubilee edition in the mid-80s where they've actually found the specific the shops or mines or amazing. buildings that Priestley writes about. It's just, I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's a wonderful yeah. book. And the other one, then The American Way of Death by Jessica Mitford, a former uh, star of Backlisted, <laughs> Decker Mitford. I found American Way of Death, which is a book about She's Commie the... Mitford, isn't she? Yeah, yeah, Commie Mitford, yeah. <laughs> She's about the American uh, funeral industry, written in the early 1960s. In one level, clearly very dated. I mean, it's like a, a fascinating mixture of investigative journalism written by a Mitford. <laughs> so it has, it has like, it's a combination of watchdog and uh, you and non-you. Um, but, it, but, it, but as a, knowing her background and her communism, uh, as a, an analysis of American capitalism and how it feeds into social practice, it's still Brilliant, yeah. brilliant book. And, and also the thing that's so fascinating about The American Way of Death is she had to persuade agent, publisher, everyone to take it on. And then even to her own surprise, it became a phenomenal yeah, it was bestseller. bestseller wasn't it? yeah, it's it's one of the biggest selling books in America of the 1960s. And it's the reason why I'd never been able to make this connection. You know that Tony Richardson made a film of Evelyn Waugh's novel, The Loved One, in the mid-1960s. It's got a script by Isherwood and Terry Southern. Oh, you tweeted about this yeah, as well. Yeah, it's, it's shot by... Oh, I can't remember his name. Haskell Wexler. Haskell Wexler. Yeah. yeah, and it's not a great film, even allowing for all those component <laughs> parts. But I couldn't understand why this film had been... What a strange film to be made in the mid-60s. And the reason it was made is because The American Way of Death had been such a bestseller that they looked round and went, here's a film, what else have we got? That'll do. Yeah. And so this crazy post-Strangelove version of Evelyn Moore gets made. Evelyn Moore hated it, of course. God, the man, really? Evelyn Moore. And is it, can you, is it available? Is it, is it YouTubeable? I don't watch it. Yeah, the, 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 the love, love one, one, I think, yeah. it's, it's, it's around, yeah. You can, you can see it. I, I must right. say it, 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 it wore every minute of its two hours quite heavily <laughs> but uh, you know it was it was nice to see it but the point the general point i wanted to make was this is these are all books from a list from somebody else's list and i really like lists i feel like the unwelcome cousin at the tls dinner <laughs> standing up and saying that because lists people look down on lists don't they? they're seen as being reductive you know we're all supposed to be perfect readers who can trot easily from subject to subject and genre to genre. I have the perfect you know. gift for you, is lists of note. You can, oh, OK. It's a, it's a beautiful illustration. In fact, in the introduction to lists of note, one of the things that, that Sean says is that human beings probably made lists before they... Before anything else, before they were sort of writing joined-up yeah. sentences, you can imagine it's it's it is that sort of the simplest possible way of ordering experience. You could also say that all stories are lists. You know, stories are sort of things that are that are linked, but in some sort of meaningful way. I had this great experience with the sight and sound list of the 100 greatest films yeah. which was published when was that three or four years ago so i looked at the sight and sound list of the 100 greatest films and i thought okay i've seen 33 of these films roughly gonna... the same score as you scored on the boeing <laughs> yeah, list no, I, 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 I work in third i work in thirds <laughs> <laughs> imperfect thirds but i thought well i tell you what i'm going to do i'm going to watch all of these films and what happened was at first uh, it was like a version therapy. 
But actually, it massively expanded my horizons in terms of what I thought about when I watched a film and what I expected from a film and what I understood about art house cinema and what it was trying to do. It just seems a really democratic way of handling recommendation, and I don't really understand why people get get uptight and snobby about it. Well, I mean, you know, people do because they think it's some sort of it's cutting off other things. You know, it, it, all lists are kind of exclusion. But that's, you, you kind of ha- can't, as I <laughs> confessed on the last podcast, it's really hard to live without a list. But the yeah, point yeah. is they're also, it's, it's laying out, a, I mean, I always think the oldest, the, the most successful format of all Desert Island Discs is just a list of your of your favourite yeah, records. Yeah, and anyone yeah. who doesn't make lists of of things, it seem, that would seem to me to be a far more weird way of... I uh, also think there's a sort of E.M. Forster-ish... What? mistrust of the clerks <laughs> improving themselves yeah. you know that Leonard Bass thing about this guy should know his place and not well, and be educated <clears throat> properly and not seek all, to all the himself. early all the earliest cuneiform tablets the earliest examples <laughs> of, of writing that we had were yeah. basically just they were it was accounts it was people writing yeah, yeah. you know other lists of ingredients or that you know the king has ordered 10, 10 <laughs> vats <laughs> 10 vats of beer the Sumerians are very keen on beer that's one of the many reasons I'm they're underrated as a, as a, as a, as a civilization. <laughs> as an ancient culture. Yeah, as an ancient culture. Where do they come in your list of top ten ancients? Uh, well, I mean, of course, the earliest work of literature that we have is the Epic of Gilgamesh. I think we should work on a top ten list of lists. <laughs> <laughs> well, a list of no is, in fact, a list of lists. It's a, list. It's a, a meta list. And you, there's a list in there of Galileo's shopping list of things I'll need to build my telescope. <laughs> and there's also a Michelangelo shopping list where he's drawn pictures of apples and things that he needs to... I'm quite surprised that... The, the shopping lists of Sylvia Townsend Warner aren't available to peruse, given her mastery of every Actually, other you've, form. You've hit on the slight snobby. You know, I suppose you'd find Shakespeare's laundry list interesting. You know, that there was that. Yeah, kind yeah, of, yeah. And, yeah. and you, the answer's got to be, of course, well, I of course would. you would. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We'll be back in just a sec. We're joined by Samantha Ellis, author of the book How to Be a Heroine. Samantha, I wanted you to come and talk to us about Lolly Willows by Sylvia Townsend Warner, because if it wasn't for you, I never would have read it. I read it last year, and I was totally blown away by it, because I read about it in your book. Could you tell us a bit about your book, so we can understand why you why you wanted to write about Lolly Willows? Yeah, well, so How to Be a Heroine came out of an argument that I had with my best friend. Um, we were sort of making a pilgrimage up to Top Withens, which may or may not have inspired Wuthering Heights. Probably not, actually. There's a sort of... <laughs> There's a plaque on it that basically says you've just come Plaques, here for nothing. Like <laughs> just, yeah, yeah. You know, it's a really the most kind of unromantic plaque you've ever seen. <laughs> but anyway, we were making this pilgrimage and we started arguing about which heroine we liked best, Jane Eyre or Kathy Earnshaw from Wuthering Heights. And I was going obviously Kathy. I can't even believe Jane Eyre's part of this conversation. She's so boring, you know, and she's sort of smug and, you know, she doesn't really sort of do anything. You know, Kathy's all wild and passionate and she's sort of running in the rain and the wind and it was kind of quite wuthery, you know, as we were sort of going up the hill and my friend, my best friend Emma said that, you know, Kathy it's really selfish and she's violent and she's a snob and she ruins everyone's lives. She marries the wrong man and everyone's lives are ruined. The man, everyone else, all their lives are all ruined by this. And I started thinking, well, okay, maybe she's got a point. My friend was going, she's clever, she doesn't care what anyone thinks. 
then we got to the top of the uh, the slope and the sun came out and there was no more wuthering and this plaque was going, you, you know, there's no romance here. And I thought maybe I'll go home and I'll reread those two books and just see if I've always picked, I've sort of pretty much based my life on Wuthering Heights, on Cathy in particular. I thought maybe this hasn't led me to be as happy as I possibly could be. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, she ends up a restless ghost. Sorry, spoiler for Wuthering Heights, but she ends up a restless yeah. ghost. Oh, no. <laughs> um, Jane Eyre, less unhappy at the end. I won't spoil that one. Um, so so um, anyway, I reread those two and then I just kept rereading and finding all these different heroines. And one of the books that I came to was Lolly Willows, which are, one of the books I came back to was Lolly Willows yeah. to look at again. Now, you've written How to Be a Heroine is what we could call a biblio-memoir. And <laughs> I, I oh, too, have written... I, I, well, we wouldn't, but people do. But I, too, have written what is called a biblio-memoir. Of course you like lists. You're bloody books. Yeah, well, you know, um, I hadn't even occurred to me. <laughs> so carefully had you concealed that. Yes, I concealed that. But, but I, I want to ask you a question that, you know, what, did you ever think, well, why would people want to read me writing about books? Why wouldn't they just want to read the book? <laughs> no, this didn't occur to me. I mean, me neither. Can I just say the word bibliomemoir? I had never heard it until someone said, I've you've written literally one. literally heard and it for the first time this afternoon. Well, yeah. good. I mean, it's such a weird word. Rick, are... Rick Joukowsky. Uh-huh. Is that, is he, he coined it. He coined it. But, I mean, I never I never said uh, And secondly, did F.R. Leavis worry about writing about books? I mean, I'm not comparing no. us to... Yes, no, I no. am. I'm comparing yeah, us to F.R. Leavis. Right. But also, no-one asked him that question. The tradition of... I, I mean, I don't think we've written literary criticism, but there is a tradition of looking at literature and looking God at characters us, yeah. and looking at stories and trying to work out how they relate to our own lives... We didn't sadly invent yeah. it, Andy. I, mean, I know, I know, it's funny. Know, I'd it? love to have invented something, but no. It's I also like, think, like, at the tail end of hundreds you, of years. If you wrote a book about a car, <laughs> yeah. no one would say to you, "Why didn't you just go for a drive?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I completely agree. Or build a car. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I think, yeah. I think that's absolutely. It t- seems to me totally valid that stories generate other stories, and the, and, and both your books are actually books. Of, uh, they're not works of literary criticism. I mean, there there are elements of that. In it, but that's what I think gives them, dare I say it, the the life. I mean, you know, Andy, from our days in Waterstones, there was only Mm. one shelf smaller than the literary criticism shelf. I'm struggling to remember what that shelf was now, but it was the slowest stock turn bit of. Indeed, it was. But not hardly surprisingly, because who wants to read a sort of, you know, dry academic dissertations on on literature? Also, I think in Samantha's case, and I hope in mine, I really think that your book puts books into the real world and into the real experience of readers that that outside of the classroom and or outside of the the, the university campus and tries to put books onto buses or yeah. or, or book groups or places yeah, yeah, where we disagree or how we feel well, about them you know and the point is that requirement as you know the podcast study because people spend a lot of time asking people like me and you who, who do read a lot and whose sort of jobs have revolved around it, what should I read? Yeah, yeah. And that anxiety is a real one. So Lolly Willows by Sylvia Townsend Warner. We do this on a backlisted. I'm just going to read the synopsis on the back of my 1995 Virago modern classic. Which is uh, quite a lot longer than the one on my... Yes. 2000 and... 
2006, 2012. Uh, Actually, and I've just nicked Samantha's copy here, which is 2000. 2000. The blurb gets shorter, <laughs> edition to edition. Yeah. But I'll just so so to give us the synopsis of the plot of Lolly Willows. So let's do that first, and then and then we'll talk a little bit about why you wanted to write about it. Lolly Willows is a 28 year old spinster when her adored father dies, leaving her dependent upon her brothers and their wives. After 20 years of self-effacement as a maiden aunt, she decides to break free and moves to a small Bedfordshire village. Actually, I have to say, it's a village in the Chilterns. Uh, Bedfordshire is not specified. Uh, here, happy and unfettered. I'm just saying, as I'm married to somebody from Bedfordshire, I'm, I'm very Bedford aware. Does Bedfordshire still exist? There goes our Bedford listener. <laughs> I always think of going up the wooden stairs to Bedfordshire. Yes. Oh, do you? Yeah. Anyway, Lolly Willows. A little bit of bit of childhood there just thrown in for free. A small, arguably Bedfordshire village. <laughs> Here, happy and unfettered, she enjoys her new existence, nagged only by the sense of a secret she has yet to discover. That secret and her vocation, and you may wish to switch off now, listeners, if you don't want to hear spoilers... That secret and her vocation is witchcraft. And with her cat and a pact with the devil, Lolly Willows is finally free. An instant and great success on its publication in 1926, Lolly Willows is Sylvia Townsend Warner's most magical novel, deliciously wry and inviting. It was her piquant plea that single women find liberty and civility and her pursuit of the theme Virginia Woolf later explored in A Room of One's Own. Now, that, I actually think that is a pretty great blurb. That's pretty good. Samantha, are those the reasons that you wanted to write about it in How to Be a Heroine? I was, um, well, I had found myself suddenly single after one of my, one of the reviews of my book, I was beginning what one of the critics of my book called my loveless thirties. Um, I would argue that, you know, the love of friends and family was very much part of the late part of my thirties. But anyway, I found myself single and, yeah. uh, and I was just, I just thought, where are the spinster heroines? You know, I didn't want to be Miss Havisham, you know, sitting there in my mouldering wedding dress surrounded by the kind of mouldy cake covered in mice and spiders you know I didn't want that I went back to Persuasion Anne Elliot is 27 you know and also she's longing the whole time to be married um, yeah. Cold Comfort Farm I love Flora Pace but I was just, she's so cheerful you know come on <laughs> I wasn't feeling that cheerful that entirely the whole time that cheerfulness so then I found this book Lolly Willows and it's, it's 1926 it's published. It's the heyday of the spinster novel because, sadly, there were loads of spinsters. They'd all lost their sweethearts in the war. Mm. And actually, um, Virginia Nicholson's book, Singled Out, is really good on this because some women quietly moved in with their lovers. Here I am with my female friend. We just share a flat in Bloomsbury. <laughs> Fine. It was, it was actually, for some people, very liberating, but for some people it was sort of awful, you know, and um, there's some terribly sad books. I read this terribly sad book called Consequences by E.M. Delafield. And this woman sort of can't find love and she ends up a nun and she hates it and then she tries to stop being a nun and her teeth have all rotted for reasons that aren't even explained, oh, you not. know. 
I'm, I'm, she ends, I'm, I'm going to tell you, and she's single. Yeah, it's true. Yes. It's amazing. We warned you. Better dental health you have once in a relationship. And she, she ends up. I will spoil this for you because it's, it's just, it's so bleak. She ends up putting stones in her pockets and going drowning himself in the ponds on Hampstead Heath because she just cannot think of anything Jesus. else to do. This Is that the women's swimming pond? <laughs> <laughs> it's never specified. I mean, bless her. She didn't even go for a swim. It's so awful. It's so awful. And that was 1919. And then this book comes along, and it's not like that at all. It's funny, it's subversive, and it has got a lot about the sort of grimness of being a maiden aunt. But then she finds a way out, and it's not any of the ways out that anyone would expect it to be. I have to say, I thought, well, I'll ask John what he thought in a sec, but I, I love the way that you think you're reading, and this is a high risk strategy in a novel, <laughs> you think you're reading one book. And then halfway through it becomes something totally Kaboom. different and unpredictable. Yeah. And then when you go back and read it again, she seeded it all the way oh, through. Yeah, yeah. There's a little bit... I just want to read this, just a few sentences, very early on. She would take the air in Hyde Park and watch the children on their ponies and the fashionable trim ladies in Rotten Row and go to the theatre in a cab. London life was very full and exciting. There were the shops, processions of the royal family and of the unemployed... <laughs> the gold tunnel at Whiteley's and the brilliance of the streets by night. She thought of the street lamps, so impartial, so imperturbable in their stately diminuendos, and felt herself abashed before their scrutiny. Each in turn would hand her on, her and her shadow, as she walked the unfathomed streets and squares, etc., etc. I mean, the two things to say about that are foreshadowing <laughs> metaphorically and literally and the second thing is how beautifully written is that i mean just the little cavalcade of phrases there is beautiful it's, it, it, it's well, an astonishing it's an mm. astonishing i mean it's just beautifully written also i discovered it she submitted her poetry of which more and on to uh, the publisher and he'd asked if she had anything else and she said oh, well, i've been fiddling around with this novel and maybe perhaps she'd read it and sends it in and of course you know, the editor falls on it. I mean, it is one of the most beautifully written novels I've read in a very long time. And, I, I mean, it has that in incredible kind of... Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, like, I I just keep your... Keep <laughs> <laughs> I see the hazard lights going off. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, without... The, it's, it's to tell a story. And the story, as you say, it's such a brilliant story and so unexpected. As you say, it is suited. But when it finally goes, she has this epiphany in a off Moscow Road, a little... Um, a kind of flower shop where she has the, uh, the epiphany about wanting to move to the country. And, it, God, it's such, just such a brilliant bit of writing. And also you would have to say that because this, is, this was her first novel, it's sort of it's held together not by craft, though there is craft in it, hmm. but just her talent. It's held together by her energy and her talent. And this extraordinary character, uh, Lolly, yeah. Laura Willows, who is... Yeah, just one of the most remarkable characters I think I've read in, in literature. I mean, you start off as a spinster. Well, as you say, she's totally, in a way, unbiddable. She's sort of strangely disconnected from the family around her. She goes along with... She sort of plays a game. She's a tomboy, and she ends up sort of playing the game. But then there's that um, fantastic moment when she suddenly decides, no, I'm going to do something different. But she's or even before that, she's just she's deeply eccentric. So she, uh, like Sylvia Townsend Warner, Lolly Laura Willows is educated a 
at home, which means she isn't really educated, so she just has the run mm. of the library. And she just doesn't really know how you're supposed to behave. And she there's a wonderful moment where she gets set up with this boring lawyer called Mr Arbuthnot. <laughs> and uh, she says, I, I'm going to read it. Yeah, I read do, it? Yeah, Because it's, um, it's so good. This is the last of many set-ups by her dreadful kind of brother. Boring, and boring brother and his, his wife. His, and the wife is so boring at one oh, point. That, that, that moment about the, 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 yes, grave, so, the grave clothes yes, so what, in, in, in Jesus' tomb. Yes. She's like, I really wish I hadn't asked. <laughs> Laura says, how come your, you know, your, your clothes are folded so, so neatly? neatly? And she says, well, it's like the grave clothes in Christ's tomb. We always should emulate it. And you just go, wow. <laughs> such a um, brilliant moment. But this is, this is Laura on a sort of, you know, set up, not quite a date, but set up dinner. Her remarks were, as a rule, so disconnected from the conversation that no one paid much attention to them. Mr Arbuthnot certainly was not prepared for her response to his statement that February was a dangerous month. It is, answered Laura, with almost violent agreement. If you are a werewolf, and very likely you may be, for lots of people are without knowing, February, of all months, is the month where you are most likely to go out on a dark, windy night and worry sheep. And you just think, he does not call again. One of the other things that's so wonderful about this book is she manages to do that thing, again, I think through force of personality, really, of telling you a story where you want, you want to know what happens next. OK, well, that's what you want from a novel. But also being very thoughtful, philosophically thoughtful, and also being quite weird. And as we said, the, the novel takes a very peculiar twist at the halfway point. But also funny. I mean, it's so funny. It's so brilliantly turned yeah, in terms of phrase for phrase. Did Matthew? Did you? Um, did you get the thumbs up from Clayton? Well, I had the uh, the problem I had with it is it actually got a lot to do with the packaging of the book. So yeah. I had the, the edition that John's got, which it does look like a Jojo Moyes book. Yeah, and it couldn't be uh, further and, away and, from and that. Nothing wrong with Jojo Moyes, but we hasten to add. Yes, yes. absolutely. It's not. But that it's, kind I of mean, book. I wouldn't read a Jojo Moyes book personally. And I picked it up and I started reading it, and I just couldn't get into it at all. I was like, right. Because the, it's so different at the start from what happens later on. Yeah. So I kind of I tried it because I've started it a month ago or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I just couldn't get into it, couldn't get into it. And then I read a bit more about her and she sounded like an amazingly fascinating person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Read about the, a bit more about the book itself. Because, re- again, it's the weird thing of reading it on uh, Kindle is you see the cover, but you don't read the blurb on the back. So all I knew about the book was literally the front cover of it. When I read a bit more about it, I was like, God, this is like a book totally written for me. A book about someone who moves to the country and become a witch. That's like my dream. <laughs> you my live book. in Lewis, don't you? Near and Lewis. you are a shaman. I am a shaman. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, Shall uh, uh, I say a bit about Sylvia Townsend Warner? Would that be appropriate yeah. at this yeah. juncture? Most appropriate. So, actually, I, I, I'm, I'm going to lie to anybody. I am cribbing this out of the front of my edition of... <laughs> Lolly Willow, because it's so good. I'm going to add a couple of other things as we go along. Uh, Sylvia Townsend Warner, born in 1893 in Harrow, the daughter of George Townsend Warner, housemaster and head of the modern side of Harrow. Uh, as a student of music, she became interested in research in the music of the 15th and 16th centuries and spent 10 years of her life as one of the four editors of the 10 volume compilation Tudor Church Music. In 1925, she published her first book of verse. With the publication of the novels Lolly Willows in 1926, Mr Fortune's Maggot and The True Heart in the two following years, she achieved immediate recognition. One of the things we should say about Lolly Willows is that Lolly Willows, for its relative obscurity now, was actually a, a huge critical and commercial success on publication. Yeah. yeah. 
it was oh, and uh, huge in the states. It yes. was yeah. the first ever choice for the Book of the Month Club, which yes. is the, the big so, American book club. So we should also say that she was a communist. She was a card-carrying communist. Mm-hmm. She witnessed the Spanish Civil War firsthand. She published seven novels, four volumes of poetry, a volume of essays, eight volumes of short stories, a biography of T. H. White, much acclaimed, yeah, great, and book. a translation of Proust's Contra Saint-Beuve. She lived most of her adult life with her close companion, uh, Valentine Ackland, a lady, in Dorset, then in Norfolk and again in Dorset, where she died on the 1st of May, 1978, at the age of 84. Now, the thing, the, the one last point to make about Sylvia Townsend Warner's novels is actually, I thought there, was a, there is a real parallel with the author who we did on the very first backlisted, J.L. Carr, which is that no two of Sylvia Townsend's Warner's novels are the same. They are fascinatingly different from one another, and I speak as someone who's read two of them in the last week, in addition to Lolly Willows. Uh, we'll, I want to come and talk about those yeah, in a, yeah. a little bit. But The other bit about her biography that that bit doesn't say, but which I think Sarah Waters says in, in the other edition, yeah. is that the reason she got the gig doing the four-volume musical history was that she had an affair with the music teacher at Harrow, who was a lot older. Which is what, actually, this book, sorry, comes out of. Yes, because he was... um, So she was having an affair with this married man and she was living in this sort of horrible kind of half-life. She didn't really have very much money. She was living on winkles and cigarettes and black coffee and scrambled eggs, apparently. That's your diet, isn't it? She was sort of not really... You know, she's... You're seeing a married man, you're not having a full... You know, she's wasn't having a full life and so she's writing about someone wanting yearning for a full life I think that's the sort of thing so she she never wrote an autobiography even though she wrote in almost every other form because she said she was too imaginative to write one mm. and so she says she was born with a call which the midwife claimed and sold to a sailor she says that she read um, Mackay's popular delusions when she was delusions uh, yes and when she was a child and she used to say the spells to um she used to say them to her cat hoping the cat would turn <laughs> into a devil so this is in many ways sort of dream come tree for her you know that it's sort of um that she is able to kind of write about a sort of very devilish kitten that sets the whole witchcraft story (laughs) off you know that's her as a kid on the stairs with her black cat willing it to become the devil you know she sort of makes a lot of her dreams come true and actually after writing lolly willows she sort of released herself into a much happier life with Mm. this poet valentine ackland and they were together 40 years and Mm. They lived a slightly kind of witchy kind of life in lots of ways. They used to sell chestnut jam and rhubarb chutney and uh, nasturtium seeds, like to supplement her income from writing, even though she wrote all those books. But she was selling these sort of jams and chutneys in this village in Dorset. They became a pair of lolly willows. And could you just... We ought to say, shouldn't we, that the metaphor of witchery in the second half of the book is very self-consciously feminist, Yes. right? So yeah. the, they're sort of outlaws, the witches, and she talks about women all over, all yeah. over Europe, unregarded as blackberries just springing up all over yeah, the place. Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful, isn't it? And this idea, there's just this sort of profusion of it and the sort of deliciousness almost of it, but the sort of, you wouldn't notice them, you know, the sort of prickliness, the brambliness and of it. And there's that exact phrase, isn't there? She says that one becomes a witch not to do mischief or harm people, but to quote, to have a life of one's own. A life it's, it's of one's Virginia own. Virginia Woolf, isn't it? It's, it's like, pre, before yeah. room of one's own. And the idea of a life of one's own, I think it's sort of, sort of bigger, isn't it? She's wanting to sort of 
break out of, you know, being a mis- as herself, being a mistress and sort of, you know, I'm sure she enjoyed writing about Tudor church music, but, you know, so she releases herself into a bigger life, I think. I love it. She says in places like Bedfordshire, this is the, 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 big, the long speech that she gives. Are we allowed to say who she gives the speech to? Maybe we should keep a little bit back, but they rather startling character who who takes over the, the sort of the last third of the book. I see them, wives and sisters of respectable men, chapel members and blacksmiths and small farmers and Puritans, in places like Bedfordshire, the sort of country one sees from the train. You know, well, there they were. There they are, child-rearing, housekeeping, hanging washed dishcloths on currant bushes, and for diversion, each other's silly conversation, and listening to men talking together in the way that men talk and women listen quite different to the way women talk and men listen if they listen at all mm. and there's just that sense of a kind of this eruption of uh, of, of extraordinary female energy that you know that, that kind of routine and having to there's a brilliant I thought it was one of the best the there was so much to do in the house when she was living in the house with her tedious brother and, <laughs> and his wife she, there was all so much to do to fill the day and she writes brilliantly about the servants and I think there's a there's a maid that goes into the room and she looks out on the day with no sense of surprise because she had obviously she'd been up yeah, since dawn yeah. you know yeah. But there's also, there's a moment where she decides to... So she comes home, she's 47, she's been sort of living with her family for 19 years and then she sort of comes home and says, actually, I'm going to move to Great Mop and it's a village in the Chilterns. And she keeps saying the population, I think it's 227, she keeps going, pop 227, and they keep going, what are you talking about? (laughs) You know, Aunt Aunt Lolly, what what are you talking about? And, uh, you know, they think she's gone nuts. And then she says to her brother, well, I mean, I've got... I've got an income. She, you know, she has an income that he, and he goes, oh, well, you know, I can't allow it, I can't allow it. And then he sort of goes, actually, I've, I've lost most of it. Yeah. I've invested it in it. And he tries to bluster his way through. He goes, well, these dividends don't always, you know, you, you've lost it. You've lost the system. You were supposed to safeguard it. She didn't know what she was doing with it. And you were supposed to look after it and you've lost it. And she goes, well, I won't be able to get a thatch cottage and I won't be able to get a donkey, but I can still go. And she goes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah. it's this extraordinary kind of, the sort of, uh, the the sort of resistance or the sort of financial power that they've had, the control they've had over her, just by having her to live in their, their smaller spare room, not their larger spare yeah, room. Yeah, I love that bit. You know. I, I loved, I, I, so I found that reading of the book really, really interesting. But I, the thing I found when I read it last year, after you recommended it to me, that really struck me uh, is the way that the novel starts off as a kind of Edwardian almost an Edwardian comedy of manners, mm. and then morphs into this peculiar Arthur Macon, yeah, yeah. like Arthur Macon, author of The Great God Pan. Yeah. It's this strange... Uh, it's, it's like it's, a Beryl Cook yeah. <laughs> pagan <laughs> ceremony. It does, it, it's sort of uh, illustrated yeah. by Stanley so, Spencer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but also, I, well, so I was really struck passage. by that. Do you remember the Piper at the Gates of Dawn chapter in, in Wind, um, Wind and the Willows? Willows. Yes, yes, there yes is that. That's very of its time. And, and at the same was, time, she was Macon was her brother-in-law. Yeah, and she was friends with realized. the Powers brothers as well. So there was yeah. this sort of... I mean, what I love about it, though, is that as somebody who, who's moved out of London to live in a village, she's so brilliant at, at capturing this sort of... <laughs> she doesn't really want to get on with the villagers at all. And, the, 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 and there's this sort of... Str- no, that's really true. Yeah. Yes, that's very funny. She, she, she doesn't sort of throw herself into village activities, yeah. but she kind of... Um, she we, makes scones, doesn't yeah, she? she does. shapes <laughs> the villagers and they go a bit wrong. And then um, one of them comes round and Mr Saunter ate the strange shapes without comment. Quite <laughs> splitting open the villages and buttering them <laughs> 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 you know 
but she notices they're all a bit odd. Everyone in the village is a bit odd, and she doesn't know why. And this yeah. is sort of the start of her sort of investigation. Tell us about the thing with the cat. Oh, so she, yeah. she the cat finds her. Right? Well, so she's got this village, and she's having a lovely time. And then her with Mrs. Dra- Leek, her, her Mrs. Who, Leek. Living, living in Mrs. Leek's house as a, as a lodger. Yeah, the landlady who makes a quite sort of dandelion cowslip wine yeah. and stuff, and it's they a bit bond of a over sort of because she's always wanted to make things. She's always since her nanny told her about mugwort and yeah. she's yeah, always yeah, wanted yeah. to make decoctions and kind of tinctures of, of strange hedgerow plants. Yes. So she's there, you know, she, she's having this sort of time. And then her dreadful nephew turns up. And I was going to say, in all books of this period, sorry to all the men around this table, but if a man writes, he's definitely bad news. You know, all the men who write are really bad news. Can so, confirm. <laughs> I mean, you're all lovely, but Titus he turns up, Titus Willows turns up, and he's oh, a yeah. sort of fat, lordly child, and now he's a sort of Oxbridge annoying... Graduate. Yeah, so he wants to write this book. <laughs> he wants to write this book. Yeah. And, you know, he turns off and goes, oh, this looks like a brilliant writer's retreat. I shall stay here with my aunts. And she's just, Manspreading. Oh, no. It's a brilliant bit yeah. of manspreading. Yeah, it's yeah. awful. And um, <laughs> and she's sort of thinking, I wish he'd go away. I wish he'd go away. And this kitten turns up, just as she's been saying to the to the woods, <laughs> how can I make him go? <laughs> and um, uh, this kitten turns up and, I don't think we should spoil everything, but saves her, really. Uh, the kitten's called Vinny. She calls kitten vinegar, <laughs> and um, one of the things, she, one, one of the, yes, one of the things she's able to do is uh, she doesn't do anything terrible to Titus, but one thing she does, which stops him really writing his book, is she sours his milk just daily. Yeah, yeah, you can't right. write with sour. Yeah, you know, yeah, how yeah. can you write that way? You can't make any I mean, tea. <laughs> I love. I, I, we're doing passages. I love. <laughs> this is uh, earlier in the book at her father's gravesite. Oh, it's yeah. that one of the first in, intimations that you get that she's. I mean, she's not interested in religion, but I, I just. This is. The bees droned in the motionless lime trees. A hot ginny churchyard smell detached itself in a leisurely way from the evergreens when the mourners brushed by them. The sun, but an hour or so declined, shone with an ardent and steadfast interest upon the little group. In the midst of life, we are in death, said Mr. Walbury, his voice sounding rather shameless, taken out of church and displayed upon the basking, <laughs> echoless air. In the midst of death, we are in life, Laura thought, would be a more accurate expression of the moment. <laughs> and I just, I, it's just brilliant. I love the way his voice, the vicar's voice, sounds sort of shameless outdoors, you know, not that well, Church of England yeah, kind of drone. Yeah, 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 yeah. But as you say, seeded through the book, the rebellion when it comes ought to be ridiculous and it ought not to work at all. But it's it's one of the most. I just thought it was one of the the scene where she comes and she she just announces at dinner that she's going to be moving. It's really exhilarating. It's funny and exhilarating, which is a really interesting combination that you don't get together very often, actually. She has a sort of. I've got to say, she has a sort of almost a sort of sexual awakening as well. Mm. Because um, can I read you? I'm oh yeah. A bit. Oh, but, yeah. Um, so she goes to. Of course, once she's a witch, you know, you have to go to a witch's Sabbath, and they're all dancing and at first she goes I don't think I like this I never like dancers it's awful it's just as bad as you know being in a kind of awful dance in town and then these depressing thoughts were interrupted by red-haired Emily who came spinning from her partner's arms seized hold of Laura and carried her back into the dance Laura liked dancing with Emily, the pasty-faced and anemic young slattern who she had seen dawdling about the village, danced with a fervour that annihilated every misgiving. They whirled faster and faster, fused together like two suns that whirl and blaze in a single destruction. A strand of the red hair came undone and brushed across Laura's face. The contact made her tingle from head to foot. She shut her eyes and dived into obliviousness. 
I can't say it, obliviousness, with Emily for a partner, she could dance until the gunpowder ran out of the heels of her boots. Oh, that's great, isn't it? I mean, she's having so a nice graphy, time. Matthew, Matthew, I don't want to miss the chance of a tenuous link The tenuous link, link, do we feel one? Yeah, no, weirdly, there is a tenuous link. So in previous podcasts... <laughs> you say weirdly. <laughs> Surely, <laughs> Surely <laughs> by not. now it's not. Um, so it, it, weirdly, we've done tenuous links to Andy. We've done a tenuous link to John before. And there's actually a tenuous link to me in um, Sylvia Townsend Warner, which is that... So I live in a village in Sussex called Kingston. And I discovered that she was a regular visitor to Kingston, in fact. And she used to go and stay with uh, Ian and Trekkie Parsons. So Ian Parsons was the chairman of Chatter and Windows, her publisher. I think when she started, he was a kind of junior then. He ended up being the boss. And Trekkie was his wife. Kind of, that was her nickname. Um, but everyone, that's what everyone knew her as. And she was an artist. And they were kind of... So they're in Kingston, which is just down the road from Rodmell, where um, Leonard Wolfe and Virginia Woolf lived. And after Virginia died by walking down to the river with her coat full of stones, Trekkie had a relationship with Leonard. She stayed with Ian, but for 30 years or so, she was quite a lot younger then, they had a relationship. It was never really clear whether it was consummated or not, but she'd go on holiday with him every year. She'd go on holiday with her husband as well. Um, and Ian also, Ian Parsons, had a, a long-standing affair with Nora Smallwood, who was also the boss of Chatham Windows, a kind of legendary female publishing figure. So I, I kind of think it's just interesting that, like, Sylvia had an unconventional life and she had all these friends around her that had this kind of... They were very respectable, but they were kind of unconventional. Mm. And I've and people in the village have said to me, when when I've asked her, oh, what do you do? And I say, I work in publishing. They say, oh, there used to be a fellow up the road who worked, <laughs> worked in publishing. And people have said that to me before and they never knew who it was until... This week, when I discovered who it was through um, mm. reading about Sylvia Townsend Warner, which is fantastic. So I walk past that house all the time, and I'll think of her every time I do that from now on. And she, she I mean, she's remarkable. I, I get the feeling. I mean, I've been reading her letters. Um, I've got the, one of my most treasured possessions is a, a selection of her letters edited by William Maxwell, who I had the great fortune to publish um, at the very end of his life. He was the fiction editor for 40 years of The New Yorker. And... Like I said earlier, she had this early success with, with Lolly Willows in America, but then became one of the regular people who had their short stories published in in, um, in The New Yorker, none of which I've read, but which I sort of want to go back to. Because yeah, they're about elves, aren't they? They're kind of elfin kingdom. It sounds well, extraordinary. the end of their life, yeah. yeah. And he, he anyway, this lovely sort of dedicated copy of the letter saying, you know, my, my, my three-year labour of love, edited, He was she made Maxwell hit her... The literary executor. So Maxwell said of her. I just interrupt John. Maxwell said he wrote. Um, Sylvia Townsend Warner once said, "I write short stories for money," but it was quite untrue. <laughs> <laughs> she wrote to please herself and because she had no choice. <laughs> she just comes across as one of you know. There are very most often with writers you read them rather like um, uh, Samantha was saying. You know, you kind of. Actually, maybe Kathy wasn't a very nice person. <laughs> yeah, but you know, you sometimes with writers you read them and think, "Oh, I love their work, but I really wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to have dinner with them. I would. I can't think of anyone I would l more oh, love yeah. to have spent an evening she with than Sylvia Townsend. Yeah, she reminds me. We have a, we had a until recently, in fact, when she just died at 102, we had an elderly woman archaeologist in the next village, and then, in fact, there were two elderly women archaeologists both <laughs> living in by chance next door to one another. Wait for an elderly. I know. <laughs> 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 but they. 
were the, they, they used to make jam, and you felt they were kind of they were sort of like they were like there was had that sort of witchy kind of, but also connection with, and there was a, a, it reminded me that in the book she she writes about uh, the, a, a, a wanting to keep a donkey, and I remember Nancy Saunders because she Nancy Saunders also another link here tenuous link she was the she as N K Saunders because she couldn't you couldn't she didn't want to be known that she was a woman particularly as a, as an, a scholar was that for, she translated the epic of Gilgamesh for the first time for Penguin Classics. Mm. But she was, um, she, she, she was also, she went hunting on a donkey. Oh, really? <laughs> Which is very wow. Sylvia Townsend Warner. But almost impossible. Yeah. But there were, she showed me pictures of her when she was a little what, girl. What do you hunt on a donkey? Well, I mean, you know, you, I think in those days it would, what would, have, it would have been a fox. Um, but uh, slowly, oh, yeah. obviously. So, she, pops yeah. up, she pops up in... Um, I was reading Julia Blackman's book about John Crask. It's called yeah, Threads. Oh, yes. And so John Crask was this, you know, fisherman who had a terrible sort of injury during the war and then he was sort of confined to his bed and he started painting because he couldn't really do... He had to be lying down and she, he started doing embroidery. And he, he wouldn't have you know, sold any of his work, really, if it wasn't for Sylvie Townsend Warner and Valentine Ackland, because they championed yeah. him. I think because they, they liked outsiders, you know, and outlaws yeah. and the people who were on the edges. The thing about Sylvia Townsend Warner, I, re- I just want to say a little bit about the um, about her other novels, which is so different from one another. But like J.L. Carr's novels, the more of them you read, the more depth you can see in them. I read last week, after the death of Don Juan, on the recommendation of John from the LRB bookshop, who had grabbed me by the arm and said, she is the greatest novelist of the century. (laughs) And you've got to read this book. And thanks, John, it was fantastic. It retells the story of Don Juan. What's the book called? After the Death of Don Juan. Oh, After the Death of Don Juan. And it retells the events from Mozart's opera from the perspective of the villagers who have to put up with it. And (laughs) while being simultaneously a metaphor for the Spanish Civil War in a way which starts off as amusing and ends up utterly passionate. It's a a wonderful book. I've never read anything like it. But the other novel I read was a novel that she wrote ten years later called The Corner That Held Them, which is about 50 years in the life of a 14th century convent. It is a masterpiece. I think Lolly Willows is a fantastic book. I thought After the Death of Don Juan was great. The Corner That Held Them is the best novel I've read for months and months and months. It has no plot. (laughs) All the nuns talk rather like you would expect Sylvia Townsend Warner and her friends to talk. And yet it is so exquisitely made in terms of evoking time and place. And it's funny and it's passionate and I've never read anything like it. I realise one of the great boons about doing this podcast is we get to immerse ourselves for a week or two in these wonderful writers. So it's not just the novel that, that no, no, you, I mean, you bring, Samantha. And it's I would, also just getting to I would know echo a writer. That. I, I mean, I want to go and read all of them. It's just great 
titles as well. I mean, Mr. Fortune's Maggot. That's very funny the, and very good. The so, Corner That Held yeah. Them and then her last novel, The Flint Anchor. I mean, all, <laughs> such great titles. You, Samantha, you were saying that Summer Will Show is Summer really good. Summer Will Show is very good. It's a, a woman who goes off to revolutionary France to chase down her husband who is seeing another woman and uh, she just gets more interested in his mistress. And she also <laughs> gets swept up in the rev- into revolutionary politics and discovers the, her sort of anarchists, you know. But that's the amazing thing about the... I mean, we're saying the books are different from one another, but certain things that they have in common, like The Corner That Held Them, is a deeply communistic novel. It's a yeah. Marxian reading of the economics of British society in the 14th century seen through the accounts of a convent. Uh, I mean, a Marxist witch who writes brilliant English sentences. I mean, what, honestly, is yeah. that like? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're just incredibly subversive, all the books of hers, I think, that I've read, which isn't all of them, but they're incredibly subversive. They they take nothing as sacred, you know, from yeah. the, the resonant voice of the, the clergyman to, you know, to anything else. And she just encourages you to sort of take things down you know if you want to and to sort of look at the world in a new way it feels very refreshing to read her i think sarah waters says that uh, that she's under relatively underappreciated and she said in her introduction to lolly willows a fact that baffles frustrates and i think secretly pleases her admirers (laughs) for she's the kind of novelist who inspires an intense sense of ownership which i I kind of i sort of can see that you yes it's it's not you're not going to tell everybody you know to read it but the people who you who you know would love this kind of... I mean, she's. Ex- I think she is extraordinary. Line by line, she's wonderful. She's so funny, you know, and she does... She does surprise you on every page, I think. I found it very surprising to read her novels. Humour, Marxism, witchcraft. <laughs> With that, we have to end. Uh, thanks to Samantha Ellis and, of course, always to Matthew. And to our sponsors, Unbound. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, at BacklistedPod. <laughs> on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash BacklistedPod. <laughs> I am reading a script here. You can... <laughs> and, on, and on our page... Reading on un... it beautifully, nice. Testified. <laughs> and on our, Testified. on our page on the Unbound site at unbound.co.uk uh, forward slash uh, Backlisted. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another show in a fortnight. Until from me, goodbye and... Thanks very much, everybody. See you next time. You can choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Backlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks.